Well, I want to share a story this morning. It uh, happened, I don't know, about fourth or fifth grade. Um, it doesn't cause any pain for me, but it causes pain for the subjects of my story. Uh, it's the story of the day that my brothers and sisters and I taught the, the pastor's kids how to play poker. Right? It, I, you know, at the time, we thought nothing of it, but it was apparently a pretty big deal. Right? Let me, let me back up just a little bit. My dad is a Nazarene preacher's kid. He's a Nazarene preacher's grandkid. He's a Nazarene preacher's nephew. And I'm not sure how many others. I think there are a few others in there. So like my dad, hardcore Nazarene holiness tradition. Southern Indiana, right? You can't get more Nazarene. Right? They even say it differently, I think. They're, they're just weird out there. Um, my mom, on the other hand, you've heard of the story, the, the TV show... Um, well, wives of Orange County or something like that. Well, my mom's story is dads of L.A. Um, my mom grew up with a, an alcoholic mom, my grandmother, um, hardcore alcoholic, and along with her five husbands, my mom's five alcoholic dads. And what my mom remembers is not that mom, her mom, when she got drunk, she was never mean, right? She made a great point of making sure that I recognize it, and I knew that, that my grandma was not mean. She just kind of got sleepy and whatever. Um, but my mom's memory growing up is a whole bunch of men and, and my mom's friends all over at the house drinking, open up beer bottles for everybody, and then playing cards, gambling. That, that's what they did. That's, that filled their days. If they weren't at the bar doing the same thing, they were in their living room. And she remembers, you know, as the day wore on, as the drink wore on, there would be some yelling, some fighting, some people storming out, Maybe coming back in a little bit later. I mean, that was, right? My dad and my mom, I don't know how they found each other. <laughs> no, I, I just can't, I can't explain how they, how they got together. Um, but mom and dad, they, they had, together they figured out Nazarendom, I guess, for us kids. Right? They, I don't know how they did it. And again, I don't know how many fights it caused. I wasn't privy to that. But they always kind of came out with a, a unified plan, right? There was the Nazarene rules, right? And, but mom and dad would kind of look at them. And I, I don't know how they did it, but they would kind of wrestle with the intent of it. Because they wanted us to understand, not just to follow blindly, but to understand what we were doing and why we were doing it. So for our family, playing cards didn't have anything to do with gambling, it just, that's just the way we were raised. Mom didn't bring the gambling aspect into our family. So we played, you know, every different kind of card game in the world. And we all, because she knew how to play, we all learned all the different poker games. Um, so the Ashleys, they go on vacation. Lo and behold, they're going to the General Assembly. And they decide to leave their two boys with the Carter family. So we're hanging out in the garage. And Chuck and Ruth roll up from their, wherever the General Assembly was. I think it was in Florida that year, 72. Um, they roll up, and we got the cards all out, and <laughs> nobody tries to hide it because nobody knows. I, I think Jeff and Ash, Jeff and, and, and Alan might have been nervous, but the four of us were just like, hey, 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 and like, it got weird really fast. <laughs> it got, so the problem, the problem, the clash, you understand, is like my family had our traditions, but then there was the holiness tradition, Right? And we who are, have been Nazarenes for a long time, we understand what that means. In the holiness tradition, we have a whole lot of rules, right? A whole lot of things. Don't do this and do this. Don't do this. And all of them, all of them. And, and again, I, you know, I kind of make fun of it. We became known as, you know, holier than thou, holy rollers, right? The Nazarenes. They couldn't do anything else, but, you know. Um, so we had this reputation. There's this long list, and gambling was, was on the list. Now, here's the key, though. Here's the key. Here's what I didn't understand at the time. Every single one of those long lists, every item on those incredibly long lists, they all, at their heart, 
They all had one of two things at their very heart of it. It was never judgmentalism. It was never, it was never anything like that. It was, it was two things only. It was what they wanted to be holy and they wanted to be loving. They wanted to be holy and they wanted to be loving. Now, eventually, a lot of those rules kind of got weird and we lost the original intent. And we're not allowed to do stuff. And as a teenager, I was like, why? And I would get the silliest explanations, right, until I got a little bit older and I kind of recognized then maybe what the deal was. Um, but this crazy long list of, of, of no's, right, born of a desire to be holy and a desire to be loving. Just like we read just a little bit earlier, right, in Matthew chapter 22, starting at verse 37, right, the the, the Teachers of the law wanted to catch Jesus saying something that he shouldn't say or you know, trying to figure out what he thought about the burning issues of the day. So they asked him, you know, what are the biggies? What are the, what are the big commandments that we should remember? You know, sum up the Bible for us there, Jesus. So Jesus complies. He's a nice guy. So love the Lord all your God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, right? So to love the Lord with all your God is rightfully interpreted as being holy. So we Nazarenes, right, we love God because we want to be holy because God is holy. He's holy. He calls us to be holy even as he is holy. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, just like we read earlier. Holy people desire to be loving people. We looked at that last week. Particularly those people in need. But here's the problem, and it happens every time. Right? In our desire to be holy and loving, we become wholly unloving. Right? We, we, we just become terrible. We, two big monsters, right? Pride and judgmentalism. Right? They just start, they, they just wreck everything. Right? We're trying to be holy and loving, and we become wholly unloving. All too human tendency, right? To take what was intended for the good of all of us, take it as our own. Right? Own it and control it and put a crown on it. Like, that's me, baby. Right? We, we just have this human tendency to compete and be better than the person next to us. It's, it's just, we twist good gifts and disciplines and we use them to elevate ourselves and put down other people because in order to elevate ourselves, we, you know, we got to create that gap. And we do that with our spiritual disciplines. The very things that were supposed to help us love God and help our neighbor divides us from our neighbor and divides us from God. Craziest thing. And it's not easy to notice. It just kind of happens very, very, very slowly. But eventually we become very proud and judgmental. Much like the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. This is in Luke. I'm going to just kind of run through this very quickly. This is pretty much the traditional text that a lot of people, a lot of pastors, they start the Lenten season with this passage. What I'm going to do, I'm going to show you a picture, and I'm going to read it to you. And I just want you to look at the picture and feel the words, right? I want you to visualize this as much as I want you to intellectually listen to it. Now, to some who are confident of their own righteousness, right, pride, and look down on everybody else, judgmentalism, right? Those are the two biggies. Jesus told this parable. Two men went to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, right, you see which one, he's on the left there. And the other a tax collector, he's kind of hiding in the shadows, he's a sinner. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, God, thank you that I'm not like those other people, robbers and evildoers and adulterers and even that loser, the tax collector, standing over there in the shadows. I fast twice a week, this is going to become important. Right? I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector, he stood at a distance. 
he would not even look up to heaven and he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus concludes, says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, the sinner, this man, rather than the other guy, <laughs> went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. So we have two human tendencies that get in the way of holiness and love. Every time it's actually only one. I've kind of broken it up into two, but it's really only one, right? Look at me and look how good I am, and look at him and look how good I am, right? It all comes back to me, right? The first one, look at me, how prideful, you know, and then look at him, like the judgmentalism, right? That, that just, it wrecks holy and loving actions every time, every time. So God gives us a choice. He's going to humble you or, or you can humble yourself. Which brings us to the Lenten season and fasting. <laughs> See that connection there? Pretty sweet, huh? We're called to fast and to humble ourselves during this season. And again, many folks who observe the Lenten season, this is, for some of us, this is relatively new. I understand that. If you were raised Catholic, we're probably doing it all wrong because you know how to do it, right? We're a Protestant church and we're kind of winging it. Right, because I wasn't raised doing this all the time. Um, you let me know afterwards. Uh, right? Okay. All right. Um, so, so a lot of folks who observe Lenten season, including Catholics, like they select some form of self-denial, right, an affliction. In the Book of Leviticus, that's what it calls it. it kind of uses that term affliction with fasting interchangeably, right? Some kind of affliction um, to deny yourself food. That, that was that was the big one. Deny yourself food. That was probably the meanest thing that you could do to yourself. Um, and folks do these things as personal spiritual disciplines, right? To prepare themselves, um, to, to humble themselves, just like what Dan was saying, um, to more fully appreciate what happened on Easter Sunday, right? To kind of live without Christ, to more fully recognize what we have in Christ on Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, right? Now, part of the reason is because, you know, whatever is absent or scarce um, creates a greater desire for whatever is absent or scarce, so that when it finally is no longer absent or scarce, we greater appreciate it, right? I mean, this, this makes sense. But there were a lot of other reasons in the Bible that people fasted. One of the reasons was distress and grief, right? We read this many times, right? I mean, you, you recognize this. When, when something horrible happens, many of us, we... But we lose our appetite. We can't eat. We're, we're just so kind of bent out. And, and I don't know how it started. I kind of dug into this just a little bit. But there seemed to be this connection that when people are in grief and distress, we come alongside them and we don't feast with them. We don't celebrate and party. We mourn with them. So we kind of stop eating too. We, as a way of identifying with them. You ever have somebody, maybe I, I see this in the news all the time, somebody has cancer and they cut all their hair off and all the little kids in the class go and cut all their hair off too, right? And it's like, oh. it's kind of what's going on here. God's people, this is the way we respond when we see people who, they're not fasting on purpose, but life has made them fast from the things that give them nourishment. So again, David fasted as a sign of grief when Abner was murdered in 2 Samuel 3. Seven-day fast at the death of Saul in 1 Samuel 31. The Apostle Paul being transported to Rome as a prisoner. You know, big storm hits and all the, all the people on board, they weren't even Christians, right? But they're like, hey, let's fast. That seems to work, right? And they fasted. 
Also, fasting was used during times of spiritual preparation. It's kind of a self-sacrifice, right, that makes you kind of more humble and more accepting of God's will. Moses fasted for 40 days as he prepared to receive the Ten Commandments, right? Daniel fasted for three weeks before receiving his vision. Um, Jesus, we know this, fasted for 40 days. And, and during that fast, really, what, again, we've talked about this. Dan talked about this. During a fast, kind of we, we take our eyes on what is normally all around us and what is easily accessible to maybe focus on the stuff that's more valuable. And so I can imagine for 40 days, Jesus kind of going through this whole trial of how am I going to do this? I can give gifts. I can do, I mean, I can do a lot of things like politicians, but that 40 days of fasting, God made very clear to him, no, 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 no. And it was during that 40 days that, you know, without food, without, Jesus became hyper aware of his heavenly father. I just get that distinct impression. And the impression that Jesus got is, no, you can't do it these ways. You got to do it with love. And he came out of that 40 days prepared, right? Prepared for what was to come. In both the Old and the New Testaments, fasting is seen as, as just humbling yourself, right? As a sign of commitment or repentance to a more increased um, faith. And finally, a sign of repentance and atonement, right? When Jonah predicted the downfall of Nineveh, they fasted for days and God heard them. And God forgave them, which made Jonah mad, right? Because Jonah wanted them punished. He didn't like the Ninevites. The Day of Atonement was actually the one day of the year that the Israelites had to fast. I don't know if you recognize this. There's always, all throughout the Old Testament, a lot of fasting, a lot of fasting. But there's only actually one day, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, in which the people were required to fast, and again, I mean, they, again, they did it a lot. Whenever they sinned, they, they would humble themselves and they would fast um, for God's sake. So in Mark 2, we're going to get to this. We have a perfect storm in Mark chapter 2, right? We have something intended for good, fasting, right? That's been twisted into a tool of pride and judgmentalism. And then finally, Jesus gets really at the heart of fasting, right? More so than maybe what some of us recognize so I want to jump right into Mark chapter 2. It starts in, I'm going to, verse 18, chapter 2. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Right? Two groups of disciples, Pharisees and John the Baptist. And some people came and asked Jesus, hey, so how is it that John the Baptist and the disciples of Pharisees are fasting, but you guys aren't? Now, as again, as we learned in Luke chapter 18, there's only one day required, right? The, the day of atonement. Well, we... We didn't learn that in Luke 18, but we just now talked about that. Only one day, Leviticus, um, the Day of Atonement. But the Pharisees and other groups who wanted to be closer to God, and again, like Dan was saying, we can't fault them on this. We all do a lot of things that we aren't required to do biblically because they're loving things, and they help us be loving people. So we do, again, a lot of things that the Bible doesn't make us do, but we do them. And this is kind of that situation. These disciples, they, they just wanted to be closer to God. But again, like Dan was saying, it became a thing of pride, right? Look at me. And a thing of judgmentalism. Look at him. He ain't doing a thing. <laughs> he's not even, he's not fasting, not doing anything. It just kind of, kind of wrecks, kind of wrecks everything. Now, much like fasting during Lenten, you're not required to do it. Jesus does not require it. We're going to find out. 
The Bible doesn't require it. It's just something that you might want to consider as something very, very valuable to your faith and your walk. Now, understand that this wasn't the first time that the Pharisees egged on the disciples of John to ask Jesus a question, right? And the answer that we have in Mark chapter 2 actually comes from a previous conversation. And I'm going to show you that conversation in the book of John. This happened before this incident in Mark chapter 2. And in order to understand what Jesus says, we've got to kind of jump back. So I'm going to jump back. Um, the Pharisees are, are, are egging on Jesus. Um, the Pharisees had noticed that John the Baptist was getting more people baptized than Jesus, right? And the Pharisees are thinking, all right, right? We can ask Jesus, hey, what's going on? And we can, we can accomplish two goals. One, we can make him look silly because he's not fasting. Look how lax Jesus is. You don't want to follow that guy, right? That's their first goal. And the second goal was to divide Jesus' disciples and John's disciples, right? Jesus and John, they're very, very close. They're related, Right. And the Pharisees are like, if we can, we can, if we can split that group up, divide and conquer. Right. Make this group jealous of that group. And so you see them. This is exactly what they're doing. Right. They not only attack Jesus, but they slyly question John's disciples. Hey, what's going on here? What about Jesus? And so, so we got we've got this going on right here. So here's the exchange to help us understand Mark chapter two. This is John chapter three, verse 28. Again, the, 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 the Pharisees had asked the question and. John responds. This is John's response. He says, I'm not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. This is John's words. That joy is mine. Right? I'm the bride and Christ is the bridegroom. And now is the time. The time has come. It's complete. He must be greater and I must become less. So again, when the Pharisees egg someone on to challenge Jesus, right? We're going to jump back to Mark now. Continuing with verse 19. Remember the question, right? Why aren't you as holy as John's disciples? And here's how Jesus answers. How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? Right? They cannot so long as they have him with them. In ancient Jewish culture, it was a standing rule. You never fast during the time of feasting, and you never feast during the time of fasting. Right? If the community is fasting, you fast. You come alongside. Right? If, the, if, if everybody is, is celebrating, just like in the book of Romans, join the celebration. You increase everybody's celebration. When you join in somebody's mourning, you decrease their mourning. Crazy thing. Crazy thing. That's just the way human nature works, the way God made us. Right? So Jesus is reminding them that their own master, John, had told them that Jesus was the bridegroom, which means it's a time of celebration, not a time of fasting. Now, notice that Jesus doesn't negate fasting. He just says there's a proper time for it, and now is not the time. Right? The idea of fasting is to, to take something away from yourself, something that distracts you so, so you can pay closer attention to God and hear him more clearly. Goodness gracious, the man was standing right in front of them. God in the flesh was standing right there. Why would they fast? To get closer to him? Right? It, it, that doesn't make sense. Right? They don't need to fast. They need to celebrate because God is in their very midst. Jesus said, man, you're... Again, he reminds them kind of draws from that. There's a time for celebration. And a lot of these celebrations that would last for weeks, 
you wouldn't ever fast during a celebration. So those two times a week that the Pharisees and the disciples of John and a lot of people in the Jewish culture, they would fast additionally. In addition to atonement day, they would fast two times a week. It wasn't required. It was Monday and Thursday. Happened to be market days. So everybody's in town and the Pharisees and the, show, the people who had a little bit of pride and a little bit of judgmentalism, they very wisely chose the two market days when everybody could see them and they would very, very ostentatiously, very, very showingly, look how holy I am, right? I'm fasting and they would, they would make themselves look miserable like that guy did not look miserable like he hadn't eaten in a long time, I'm sorry. But they would make themselves like they would paint their face so they look gaunt, like they hadn't eaten in weeks and weeks, right? And, and, and in another scripture, Jesus says, if you're going to fast, again, he doesn't negate it, but if you're going to do it, stop playing games. It's not about the outward show. It's about the, in, what are you doing inside? What's going on inside, right? So, verse 20. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. So in this one short statement, we learn that Jesus' opinion of fasting, right? It's got its place. It's not required. But at certain times, it is the most appropriate response for people who love other people and who love God. It's just the appropriate response, right? In, in the Bible, celebrations of life and God's give, good gifts are always celebrated. Dan was pointing that out. They had so many celebrations, just tons of celebration. That was, I think God had, that was his design, right? You work really hard, by golly, you better celebrate really hard too, or you're never going to want to go back and work. You're just, I mean, you, you got to have those off times. And so God built in these rhythms once a week. Stop, right? Once a year or once every 50 years. I mean, he, he built in these rhythms for a reason, so in times of celebration, right, we celebrate God's good gifts or building more and better life into his creation. Deep gratitude and joy is the proper response. Feasting is the proper response. From, from the very beginning of the Bible all the way through Revelation, feasting is the sign of celebrating God's presence. But the flip side of this is equally true. Right, when things go terribly wrong, the response of God's people is to come alongside and identify with people who are struggling. Right? So we, we, one of the reasons we fast is to identify with broken humanity. We, we step into the brokenness around us. This, this mini death right, of fasting, it's kind of a prayer meant to demonstrate and, right, a seriousness of our confession and our prayers. Right? We want to change and we want the world to change it's like the only thing that's going to work is if we allow God to change us and we step back or join God as he changes the world therefore fasting and feasting they're both absolutely essential so Jesus continues in verse 21 with the first of two ancient parables Right? And that, that's actually what they are. They're, they're, they're parables. And in the one he's going to defend John. Now remember the goal of the Pharisees is to bag on Jesus and divide John and the disciples. So whatever Jesus says, he's either going to support himself or he's not going to support John like he's, he's in a catch-22. But Jesus doesn't get caught in catch-22s, right? He's just, he's too smart for that. So this, this is how he does it. It's amazing. Watch this. He says this first. And this one again, he's going to defend John. And he's going to defend the Pharisees, really. It says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, 
Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear even worse. See, a lot of times we make this passage out to be a lesson of making way for new things, and, and, and that it is, but, but the way Christ explains it, he's so gracious, and he's so loving, and he's so not either you measure up or I don't want to have anything to do to you. He's so not that, right? Essentially, Jesus is saying that John's fasting fit his role as the final Old Testament prophet of repentance, right? That's what you did. You were baptized in water, you were cleansed, and you fasted in the morning of your broken self that is now going to be cleansed, right? And so, that, so that, that was okay, and the same was for the Pharisees. So Jesus is giving both groups some wiggle room. He's basically saying, look, crowd, these guys are devoted to God. Right? Don't question their devotion, It's going to take them some time for this new message. Give them some time. Don't, don't make them just step right on over into this new thing. Just, just, just give them a little, little, bit, little bit of wiggle room. Just a little bit. Um, and then in verse 22, he kind of defends himself, kind of building on what happened in verse 21, defending John's disciples. He says, and no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will be burst, will burst the skins. And both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into old wineskins. See, John's wine was old and it was contained in old bottles, which suited it, right? But Jesus' wine was new and it required new bottles. In other words, two different types of piety were required with two different types of expression of holiness. John was expressing a, a stage of repentance. Jesus was expressing a different aspect, an aspect of being delivered of celebration. So John's you know, ministry of preparation is a ministry of repentance, right? Accompanied by fasting and mourning. But with the fullness of joy to come, right? The time of feasting has arrived, right? Rejoicing has begun, which begs the question, so why are we still fasting? If Jesus has come, why are we still fasting? Well, it's the now but not yet nature of the kingdom. We've talked about this before. Christ came, but he's now at the right hand of the Father, but he left us the Holy Spirit. And in the Holy Spirit, we have, like Paul says, we can see somewhat, but it's a little bit faded, a little smoky, a little hazy, right? We, so, we, so we have the kingdom of God in the Holy Spirit, but when Christ returns, it'll be fully consummated and we'll have it completely. Right now, we only have it in part like Paul says, but in time you will have fully, you will see fully, even as God sees you fully in time. But right now, it's, it's, it's now but not yet. We have the Holy Spirit, but not the return of Christ. Now, but not yet. So we, we fast during the week, but every Sunday we celebrate because Christ has arrived. Right? We have been redeemed. Right? We've, we've been bought. We've been washed. That's a time of celebration. Today is a day of celebration. So again, during Lent, we fast. On Sunday, we celebrate. But Mark had just a little bit more to say. Check this out. Fasting as a spiritual discipline, according to Jesus, all good and fine. It's got its place. But I still think sometimes we miss the heart of fasting. And the heart of fasting is really the heart of holiness. Mark is interestingly, 
and I think intentionally placed our passage in chapter 2 here, verses 18 through 22, right after three callings. Now I want to very, very, very quickly walk through these callings because three things happened in each one of these three callings. And it relates to fasting. It starts in Mark chapter 1, verse 16. This is the first calling. This is for Simon and Andrew, Peter and Andrew. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, Peter, and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea. They were fishermen. Now, you notice what just now happened, right? Mark has set a pattern in the way that Jesus calls his disciples, a pattern that the Pharisees refused to accept when we get to Mark chapter 2, right? Mark identifies the identifying feature of each person he calls, and right now they're identified. They were fishermen. Y'all notice that. They were fishermen. That's the first thing that happens. Watch what happens next. Come and follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for men. And at once they left their nets and followed Jesus. So he identifies who they are, their identity. Then he issues the call, and then they leave their old identity. Now hold on now, hold on. Happens again in verses 19 and 20. Listen to this. When he had gone a little bit further, he saw the James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets, right? These were the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. Like, that was their identity. Jesus calls them, verse 20. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee. He identifies them, he calls them, and he leaves those old identities. They left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired men, and they followed him. And one more time in chapter 2, this is in verse 14, this is, this is Levi or, or Matthew, right? Levi's his Hebrew name, Matthew's is his Greek name, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right? You're all with me. As he walked along, he saw Levi, Matthew, son of Alphaeus, and sitting at the tax collector's booth, he said, follow me. Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him, right? Tax collector, his identity. Jesus calls him. Matthew immediately, or Levi immediately leaves his old identity and follows Jesus. But is that what's really happening in step three? It's not. I'll tell you right now, it's not. When Jesus calls us to follow, the question becomes, are we expected now to become this little homogenous, little Bible-carrying, straight tie, slick back hair, we're all the same, all of our, our personalities, all of our craziness, all of our things that make us so uniquely you gets all whitewashed away. No, not at all. That's not what's going on here at all. What Jesus is asking these men to do is to take a fast from themselves, from the identity that they gave themselves. Now watch what happens next. This is amazing. All right. So. Verse 15, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house. So what we see is. Those first three steps, here's your identifying feature, I call you, you leave your identity. But with Matthew, Levi, we see something else going on that also went on with the other four brothers, right? Same thing happened to them. Jesus identifies you, he calls you out, you leave that old identity, he washes you up, he cleans you, he heals you, and he sends you back. He sent Matthew straight back to his tax collector's friend. In fact, he went and had dinner with him. Hey, I'll, I'll, I'll walk you through this next step because I don't want you to stop being who you are. You have a whole life, and I want you to speak into those people. They need healing too. I'm going to heal you, and I'm going to send you straight back. You're going to fast from yourself, and then you're going to go back healed in a celebratory mood, right? And people are going to look at you going, what is going on with that crazy guy? 
Pow, whoa, wow. So Jesus is basically saying, I think the heart of fasting, take a break from yourself. Take a break from yourself. Whatever identity that you've built, take a break. Be still and know that I'm God. Take a break. Fast from yourself, whatever, whatever it was, in preparation for and anticipation of the celebration. Closing thoughts. People ask me, should I fast from bad stuff? Well, my thought is, why don't you fast year-round from bad stuff? <laughs> why, one week, or one you know, seven-week period, I'm going to fast from bad stuff, but I'm going to jump right back to it, baby. Doesn't make any sense, does it? How about fasting from other material things other than food? Okay, just, just a thought, just a thought. What we do when we do that is we risk demonizing things that God has called good. Now, that might not happen. I'm not telling you don't do this. I'm just saying consider if you're fasting from something material and it's not something that you absolutely have to have, just be aware. Don't, don't demonize it. That, the, whatever it is, whether it's Facebook, social media, you know, whatever it is, that's not the issue. The issue is, is you. <laughs> the issue is you. So don't, don't be confused. Don't, don't be confused, Right? It needs to be something meaningful and important. That's why food. In fact, the whole idea of covering the mouth, covering, was somewhat related. You're covered by the blood, but your mouth is also covered. Right? Nothing goes in. We've been issued a sacred invitation, folks. A sacred invitation during this Lenten season to move from, look at me, right? look at me, Look at me and how amazing I am. Look at him and how amazing I am. We've been issued a sacred invitation to change that narrative, to change that narrative to look at me and how broken I once was and look at him. Look at him and how he healed me. This is kind of our call during Lenten season. So, thank you, those of you at home. Following along, those of you who came out today, we're slowly filling back up. People are getting their shots, and they're all coming back. Um, if you're at home, you know, hit share, you know, check in, do whatever you need to do. If you're here in the building, right, let somebody know that you worship God today, right? It's Sunday. It's Sunday, so there's no fasting today, folks. Right? Don't, don't fast today. It's time to celebrate life in Jesus Right? And if he gives you, if you give something to him, some identity, and you don't get it back, rejoice. <laughs> rejoice. If you give him something, if you fast something significant, you give that to him and he gives it back to you, rejoice. Rejoice. I, I, my master's degree, I studied Middle Eastern politics. That was my concentration. And I was, it just hit me this week. I even though I, I, like I studied everything, I, they, they have a, a month-long fast called Ramadan. And, and, and during, you know, by the time, between the time when you can no longer, or you can distinguish a black thread from a white thread, you start fasting. And when you can no longer distinguish that black thread from that white thread, you stop fasting and you feasted. And I thought growing up, you know, as I learned about this stuff, and I thought, well, what a bunch of pansies, what a bunch of fakes, 
What kind of faith is that, that you fast and then you wait till six o'clock or sundown and then you party, right? Well, what was the point? And I thought this week, I think they got it. And I think we're missing it. They understand the connection of fasting. It's anticipation and preparation for something even more amazing. Bow your heads. Father, thank you for being here with us this morning. Thank you for taking our identities that we've built around ourselves. You don't steal it from us. You just ask us to offer it, and we either give it, we fast of ourselves, or we don't. And Father, when we offer you, us, thank you for cleaning us up and for for mending us and making us whole again. And Father, thank you for the privilege of being sent back out into my neighborhoods so that with the power of your Holy Spirit, I can play a part in making people whole. Thank you, Father, for Resurrection Sunday that we're looking forward to and that we already get to experience. Thank you, Father. Your son's name I pray. Amen.